0: Let's pray together. Oh, Father, how great your love is for us. Lord, how vast beyond all measure. We thank you that you've given your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to be our hope as we run this race. Oh, Father, we pray that you would crush every resistance to your word, that Christ would prevail and that Christ would reign in every soul's heart here this night. We pray that by the power of your spirit that you would work. Help us to hear, help me to preach that Christ would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The life of every Christian is filled with exhortations And the reason why it's filled with exhortations is because the scripture is filled with exhortations. What is an exhortation? If we look at Hebrews chapter 3, it means to come alongside someone and strongly make an appeal or a request. And what is that request? Well, again, if we go to Hebrews chapter 3, the author tells us, Beware, brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort or come alongside one another while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So, I take an exhortation to mainly have three components to it. There is an instructiveness about an exhortation, There are the consequences of an exhortation, and there is also the desired result to every exhortation. So, if we are going on a long trip, and my wife looks over and she says, you're running out of gas, you need to pull over and get some gas. The instruction there is for me to get gas. The consequence is that if I don't listen to my wife, that we'll be stranded and the outcome will not be a favorable outcome. And in many ways, the scripture presents to us many exhortations. And just to underscore how important exhortations are to the author of Hebrews, we are here in chapter 12 amidst probably 40 to 48 exhortations that are listed in the book of Hebrews, and we land at number 20, roughly. Now, if anyone is doing their, if any one of us is a careful reader, we'll see that chapter 12 and chapter 13 really end the entirety of Hebrews, and what you're telling me is that there's 20 more exhortations to go, and the answer is yes. That's how important an exhortation is to the author of Hebrews, and what is he battling against Well, one of the things that he's battling is unbelief. He doesn't want to see the people that he's writing to filled with unbelief. He wants them to run this race. He wants them to hear the voice of the Lord. He wants them to get to their desired destination or his desired destination. But he's also working to show the supremacy of Christ as our high priest, our faithful high priest who accomplished salvation for his people, made full atonement for his people. And by the time we get to chapter 12, we see that he is here again providing another exhortation for us. So as we look at our text this evening, what I want us to walk away with is that all of us need an exhortation. Every single one of us, as we run this race, need an exhortation to look to Christ as our example and encouragement so that we would run this race with vigor. You need an exhortation to look to Christ in order for you to have encouragement and run this race with vigor and what I, what I want to do is I want to begin by looking at this exhortation look with me in chapter 12 verse 1 where he begins this exhortation by saying therefore therefore connects this thought with the previous thought which came before which is chapter 11 he goes and says therefore we also since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And so what are the grounds for this exhortation? The grounds for this exhortation is the fact that they have been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And this calls to mind the arena, the Colosseum, this group of spectators that have come alongside and come around all of these people that the author to the Hebrews is writing to. And in chapter 11, what we see is we see at least 18 people mentioned, and this is a small sample size, alongside a class of people, which are the prophets. This cloud of witnesses are all of those who, by virtue of their life, have given testimony that they have lived for the heavenly glory, the hope that is to come for Christ. And so he says, therefore, as a result of what I have just presented to you, all of the lives of these men and women who have gone before you, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, run. This is why Christian fellowship is so important. We were just talking about fellowship last night as we went to uh, uh, Ridgehaven. And the idea of Christian fellowship is not necessarily just meeting up with someone to catch up on how the week was going, but Christian fellowship is distinct from any other kind of conversation and interaction because it involves documenting what the Lord has actually been doing in your life. And so as you share what's been going on in your week, as you talk about what's going on in your day, as you... Discuss all of the struggles that are going on in your life or all of the joys that are going on in your life, what's happening is your mind is beelining its way to what the Lord has actually done. And so that you give praise and glory to the Lord. And this is why in chapter 11, verse 32, the author of Hebrews runs out of time. Because now he's communicating all of the things that God has done in ages past. And he says, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and all of these other people who have gone before us. So look around you, would Look around you. You are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. It's not just Calvin. It's not just Martin Bucer. It's not just Martin Luther and his wife. It's the people sitting in the pews beside you who have made a profession of faith, who are running this race alongside you. You are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And because of this, we are not just spectators. But they are active participants. We are active participants in this race. The grounds for our exhortation is this great cloud of witnesses. But if we look not just at the grounds of this exhortation, but at the goal of this exhortation, you'll see that there is something that the author discusses, which is not necessarily in the text. The idea of sanctification He goes on to talk about what sanctification is in verse 1. He doesn't explicitly name sanctification, but this is exactly what it is. The goal of this race, of this exhortation, is that we would run. And so how do we do that? He says, let us lay aside every weight and easily ensnaring sin. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to take those one at a time. Let us lay aside every weight and let us lay aside every sin and look at them and then bring those things together. First, let's look at let us lay aside every weight. If you show up to a track meet, and again, we're looking at the metaphor of running a race. If you show up to a track meet and you had just purchased a wool coat and wingtip shoes, a new hat, you will face one of three options. Number one, you can't run. Number two, you need to take those things off. Or number three, you can run, but the race will be very slow. And more often than not, if you are showing up to an Olympic event, you will probably either be sent home or told to discard all of those things. When the athletes competed in the Colosseum or in the ancient Greek games, They would shed as many layers as possible in order to compete with vigor. They would compete without any sort of hindrances that would stand in their way. And notice, he doesn't say that the weights are sin. He says that next, but he says, let us lay aside every weight. So what does that practically look like for every Christian that's running this race? Well... What it looks like is examining your own life to see what are those things that are contributing to a sluggishness. What are those things in your life that are contributing to a slow and a dull heart? Are you staying up way later than you should be on Saturday nights and coming to the Lord's Day and finding it difficult to pay attention to God's word by which you receive faith? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Staying up late and spending time with other people is not a sin in itself. Let's say you have a pastoral visit. Let's say you have a visit that you need to do and you stay up late. These are not sins in themselves. Or let's say you have to work long hours and provide for your family. And therefore you can't make it to be with God's people. These are not in themselves sin, but they are weights. And these are not the norm. And so what the author to the Hebrews is saying is make sure that you are doing everything that you can to frame your days, to frame your mindset so that you are zeroing in on Christ and his people, that you are running this race well. And so he says, let us lay aside every weight. But now, he says, let us lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us. And here we are actually dealing with sin. And he says, lay it aside. Whether this is original sin or a specific besetting sin, there are many debates on uh, from s- several commentators. But the fact is, is that he's calling us to lay aside every sin. And that means... That we look at our lives, we ask the Spirit for help to look into our hearts and say, Okay, Lord, where do I need to, what, what do I need to stop doing? What am I doing that's sinful? And most of the time, as you're spending time in God's Word, or all of the time as you're spending time in God's Word, the Lord will show you. What are those things that you are doing that are sinful? And the author to the Hebrews knows that this is important for the race. Lay it aside. Lay everything aside so that your attention is focused on the Lord. We go from the goals of the exhortation to now the great example. Who did this well? Well, we look at our Lord Jesus Christ. He says in chapter in verse 1, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And then he says, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. Notice that he doesn't say that we set the race or we set the pace, but it is the Lord who set this race before us, and we are to look to Jesus. This is the goal. This is the goal. and In fact, he's already said this in chapter 6, verse 18, that we look to this hope, and Christ himself is our hope, who's gone into the very presence of the Lord, our forerunner. He is the anchor for our souls. If you've watched any movie or if you've watched any Nike commercial that zeroes in on the determination of the athlete as they are competing, you'll notice that they zoom in on the eyes because where the eyes are reveals where the heart is, where the determination is. If you have a runner that's getting ready to run a race, but they're constantly looking to the left or to the right, and they look like they're not ready to run the race, then chances are they're not ready to run the race. And in the laying aside of every sin and weight that so easily ensnares us, the writer is telling us to put those things to the side and fix your eyes on Jesus. And the question really does come to us as we look to our great example, where are our eyes? Some of the things that we do, some of the weights and sins which easily ensnare us, come as a veil over our eyes so that our eyes become like Velcro, with the warm and the fuzzy things of this world, and every hook that the world can provide for us, our eyes are easily drawn and attached to those things. And the author is saying, lay it aside. Look to Jesus. Don't look anywhere else. Again, let me underscore how important this looking to Jesus is for the author. If you were to go from chapters 1 all the way to chapter 13, what you will find is there are at least, and, I, and I, I went back to double-check this, there are at least 145 references specifically to the Lord Jesus himself. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is it that important? And the answer comes back, of course Of course, it is important. Looking unto Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, the perfecter, the originator. Without him, you have no faith. Without him, you have no hope. Without him, you have no atonement. Without him, you have no peace with God. And for some of you who are sitting here, if you don't know the Lord, I'm making an appeal directly to you. If you don't know the Lord, the wrath of God hangs over your head. You have no mediator because you yourself are the mediator between you and God. And that is insufficient in and of itself. Therefore, you need a perfect mediator. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the exhortations that come to the the believer is, look to Jesus. But the exhortations that come to you, unbeliever, is this, repent and look to Jesus. But for you who are believers, we look to Jesus who is the author and the finisher of our faith. And then we look and see the glory of this example We we look at the fact that he, for the joy that was set before him, he did several things. Number one, he sat down, or he endured the cross, and he despised the shame. The very things that God has called into existence, the, the, the wood that was used for the cross, he calls into existence, now becomes the instrument of his death. The people whom he designed... We're all familiar with Psalm 139, that the Lord knits us in our mother's womb. All the faces that Jesus saw as he was hanging on the cross, all of the faces that scowled at him, that launched into all of these attacks on him, all of these faces that he designed now are opposed to him. Yet for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he sat down Or literally, and at the right hand of the throne of God, he sat down. Conveying a sense that it's done. It is finished. When we look to Christ as our example, one of the things that we see is that he joyfully did these things. What is that joy? What was the joy that was set before him? Answer, It was the fact that he would be exalted to the highest place. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 4 opens with this. That he sat down after making purification for sins at the right hand of the throne of God. But look at chapter 2 and see yourself in chapter 2. Because this is also part of the joy of Christ your Savior. Chapter 2, verse 10, the author writes, For it was fitting for him, this is the Father, for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain, that is the Lord Jesus, of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am and the children whom God has given, given me. You look at that word, ashamed. And one of the things that we see as we approach chapter 12 verse 2 is that there was joy in his enduring the cross There was joy in his despising the shame. Now, some of us have friends that we really don't like to keep company with because they always say the awkward jokes that make us feel uncomfortable or they might not dress the way that we like them to dress and they might say things or they might even smell weird and we just don't want to be around them. And they come below our standards. And to some degree, whether it's a family member or a friend, they fall short of our standards and we feel a sense of shame around them. I mean, if we're alone with them, maybe we'll just go ahead and we'll tolerate the idiosyncrasies that they have. But when we're in the company of other people, we get a little bit uncomfortable. And in the same way, shouldn't it be that way with you and the Lord Jesus himself, who you fall short of his standards You're a sinner. And yet, chapter 2 tells us that he's not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. He's not ashamed of you. And for the joy that was set before him, he did what he did, not just so that he would be exalted to the highest heaven, so that he would have the name above every other name, that at his name every knee would bow, but that he would look at you and he would call you to himself and say, come to me. And this was the joy of our Lord. And in this joy, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And this is the hope that we have. As we look to our example, as we are running this race, this is the main theme of chapter 12, that we would run this race. But how do we do it? We look to the one who's not ashamed of us. We look to the one who is joyful about enduring the cross, about despising the shame. And if, the, and if that's not enough, he also provides an encouragement for us. So we go from exhortation to example, and now he emphasizes this. He ups the ante, if you will, and he goes to encourage us by telling us, for consider him. Don't consider anybody else. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary, literally, fainting in your souls. What is this encouragement that he gives us? He tells us to use our minds. A lot of the time, people launch their attacks against Christianity because they say Christians don't think. They just take things for granted. Or Christianity is not a religion that uses the minds. And yet you look through the, throughout the entirety of the scripture and you see men studying and looking to See when the Christ is coming. They search the scriptures as 1 Peter tells us. And now the author of Hebrews is telling us consider him. Think about this. Use your mind. This is not an empty headed religion, but this is a religion that causes you to think, to look to a Savior, so that we are not saved to principles, but we are saved to a person who loved us and gave Himself for us. Think about it. Think about what He underwent. What did he undergo? He underwent hostility from sinners. The sinners who said, he said that he would save others, let him come down and save himself. They attacked the very word of God with their own words. And this is, isn't this the classic example of what we see in the garden? Satan attacking the word of God. And yet the Lord endured. He endured this hostility. And so what's the goal? What's the purpose? What's the goal for this encouragement? What's the goal for this exhortation? The goal is that you would not faint. And I want to spend just a little bit of time on this idea of fainting. What does Christian fainting look like? We all know what physical fainting looks like. You black out, and suddenly everyone has to rush to your aid to help you, to help you up. We know what that looks like, but what does Christian fainting look like? Well, Christian fainting looks like hardening your heart. You sit here and you say, man, I wish that so-and-so was here because this was a sermon for them. But really, the sermon is not for them per se. This sermon is for you who in the Lord's providence sit here. Christian fainting also looks like you allowing weights and sin to surround you, to basically encumber your running. And practically what that looks like is that one time you used to spend time in your Bibles. At one time you were so thrilled about telling people about Jesus because you had just come to know Christ. Christ. And you would wake up every morning and you would spend time in God's word. And then as the cares of this world, as the cares of this life grew, and as you had to do this and you had to do that, suddenly you started putting the times with the Lord to the afternoons or to the evenings. And then it suddenly became, I'll get to it when I get to it. And then six months later, you're not spending time with the Lord at all. And then crisis hits. And suddenly you run back to the Lord, but then the devil comes and he says, who are you to come to the Lord when you have not spent time in his word? Who are you to make your requests known to God? And now you struggle with assurance. And then you throw up your hands and you say, I'm done with this, I'm out of here. I don't even know if God loves me anymore. And you turn your back and you continue to harden your heart. This is Christian fainting. We hear a lot of this fainting, and those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength, Isaiah 40. But what does it mean to wait on the Lord? Here we are, chapter 12, verse 2. Look to the Lord, looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus. It also means you lay aside everything. You examine your life, you examine your week, you examine your day, you examine your speech, you examine your conduct and what you're filling your mind with, and you say, is this pleasing to the Lord, or is this self-serving? And so we have to examine our lives And so when it comes down to it, the author to the Hebrews is encouraging the Hebrews, yes, but the Spirit of God is calling you to examine your own life and consider him who is joyful for you. Where does that leave us? Was it instructive? Yes, because he's telling us what to do. Does he tell us about consequences to a certain degree? Yes. Yes. Lay aside every sin and weight that so easily ensnares us. The, the assumption is, is that if we don't, we will not run this race. If we don't look to Jesus, we will look at everything else. If we don't look to the Lord, if we don't lay aside every one of these things, if we don't look to the cloud of witnesses, if we don't engage with the people whom God loves, eventually what will happen is we will faint in our souls. And so where does that leave us, would you, Where does that leave you? Whether you're 4, 14, 94, or anywhere in between, the Lord is calling you to run the race that he has set before you. If you look back at verse 1, you'll notice that this is not a solo race. He says, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he says, let us, so you're hearing all of this plural talk. In other words, you are not an island to yourself. You are not called to cloister yourself up in your own home and relax and just watch the news or watch whatever and disengage from the people of God. But you're called to run and you're called to run together. And so we run. Let us run, he says. And this is the reason why every single believer needs the encouragement, needs the exhortation, and needs the example of Christ. If you zoom out a little bit, you'll see that the whole Godhead is involved in your running. The Father sets the race in front of you, the Spirit works in you to mortify sin. In fact, let me read for you what our confession says. In the section of sanctification, he calls sin, the divines called this this life, a war. And they say, although the remaining corruption for a time may, may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome, and so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And we know that this is the work of the spirit. So the Father sets the race before you. The Spirit works to sanctify you as you lay aside every weight and sin that so easily ensnares you by looking to Jesus. And you have the whole Godhead at work in your running. So where are we at today? As we go off into the week, as we go off into a new Monday and Tuesday if the Lord provides it, The exhortation to you, Woodruff Road, is that you would look to the Lord. 145 times he makes reference to the Lord Jesus. Look to the Lord Jesus and look to him and be encouraged. Let's pray. Oh, glorious Father, we thank you for our Savior. We ask that you would encourage us, help us to run this race. Oh, Father, we pray that by the help of your Spirit that we would put to death everything that is earthly in us and that Christ would be glorified in and through us. For Christ's sake we pray.